Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast that joins the dots between global health and human rights, how advances in biomedical technology can change the world from Delano to Delhi and everywhere in between. If you are a regular subscriber, thank you. We hope you're enjoying the shows. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. You can find us at all good purveyors of podcasts, particularly Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. You can subscribe at Facebook and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast, like us, and if you do, give us five stars. So this week, in a hugely special show, we get to meet Congressman TJ Cox, Democrat and representative of California's District 21. District 21 is a huge swathe of agricultural Central Valley land, from the tip of Bakersfield outside Los Angeles to the top of Fresno in the center. It's so foreign to the chattering classes of the Bay Area that people have said to me that it might as well be another nation, but it's not. It's us. TJ will tell us about the hard-working people who live there, the impact of the biomedical industry on their ability to grow crops while looking after their health, and what it means to be a policymaker to judge what lessons we should take from the rapidly evolving world of biotechnology and how we absorb them and adapt them into the lives of the middle class and rural communities. For complete transparency, I should say I was a volunteer for TJ's congressional campaign last year. I helped fundraise. Yes, me. Yes, even the old cardigan-wearing Tony Wedgwood Ben of social democracy dedicated to public finance only. I was out on the streets of Fireborn, knocking on doors, chatting with constituents. And on the election day itself, I was an election monitor doing my best to make sure voters were not refused their rights to vote. It was a life-changing experience. And then it took nearly two weeks to get the final results. Excruciatingly frustrating. But here we are, a Democrat in District 21. And joining us from his congressional office in Washington, D.C., is Congressman T.J. Cox. T.J., welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Well, good morning, Ben. It's great to uh, to hear, uh, hear your voice. It's also a pleasure. So what's it like to be part of the 2018 new class in Congress? You know, I am just so proud uh, to be part of this class. You know, it's one of the most diverse classes in the history of the United States and of the Congress. When I look around the, the tables of my colleagues, you see uh, just the face of our nation. Uh, there's myself, the first Filipino American uh, from California in the Congress. There's um, my friends that, uh, the first two Native American members of Congress, uh, two Muslim women uh, members, African-Americans, Latinx, uh, and so on. When you look around, it's the face of America, and it's beautiful. It's it's terrific for us to watch. So thank you so so much. And and I guess I'd begin with asking you. So what is District Twenty One like? Um, the uniqueness of the Central Valley. It's not the Bay Area, but what are the economic and health disparities facing your constituents? I can tell you that there's no uh, district in America that produces more milk nor more meth than the 21st Congressional District. Uh, we're the top agricultural district in the top agricultural state, but we're also uh, one of the most economically challenged. Uh, there was a study done some time ago, some of the listeners may know about it, the uh, Measure of America that was originally done by Oxfam, um, and I think it was 2010, 2012. 
but it uh, reflected that the 21st congressional was actually the poorest congressional district in America when you took a look at uh, uh, health care, life expectancy, uh, educational attainment, and, and poverty rates. And so it's certainly a district that has a lot of challenges, but it's uh, it, it's such a, a fantastic uh, district. And as you know, the fantastic communities, the Firebaugh's, the Mendotas, the Delano's, the McFarland's of the world. Many of you may have seen that movie, McFarland USA. Uh, and if you haven't, please see that, Kevin Costner. But that that is... Uh, such a great reflection of the grit, the the community, and the heart of the hardworking families here in the twenty first. You know, I knew we'd cover a lot of issues, but it it uh, I'm absolutely gobsmacked that we're already talking about Kevin Costner. So so there's a first. <laughs> yeah, but. But I'd love to talk to you about immigration, um, and, and this is an issue that's actually very important to the subscribers of a shot in the arm. So not being trying not to be too controversial immigration can be a dr- driver of disease and health but perhaps not in the way that the press think um, it's not that immigrants themselves bring disease with them but if we seek to contain them we put them at risk at all sorts of communicable and non-communicable diseases that are found already in the uh, in our societies in our communities the very communities they are looking to for help and you made a comment very early on in the campaign that deeply inspired me you said we have an immigration problem we don't have enough immigrants you're from immigrant parents yourself. What did you mean by that? That extraordinary comment. You know, Im- immigrants have always been the, the the new vitality, the the lifeblood of this country, and in a district like the twenty first, where it's the number one the, the number one industry is agriculture, uh, dairies, farming, crops, uh, especially crops, and so on. And who does all that work? Immigrants, right? And as you know, to a large to a very, very large degree, over 50%, 60%, some people say 70 or 80%, these are largely undocumented uh, immigrants. And they, as you know, they certainly don't get the the, the respect uh, and the recognition they deserve. I was recently at a, at a cherry harvest, and it is something to see uh, men and women of all ages, and, it, and I can tell you, it's 50-50 men and women, who are running, literally running up and down ladders, running to uh, dump their bins of cherries in, in order to be able to make as much money as possible in the shortest amount of time. How, when was the last time that you saw anybody, you know, running uh, as a portion of their work, right? And so it's, uh, you know, I, I can say that that the, that the immigrants that contribute to not only our industry, but to our communities, those are such a great investment. They're not a burden at all. And you touched on it a little bit, uh, but, you know, this public charge issue about the administration, this administration going after any immigrant that could be uh, considered a public charge or may use uh, some type of the uh, public services that are available to everyone, uh, that, I can tell you, is having a real harm in public health, is that is causing people not to seek the health care that they need to keep themselves healthy and their communities healthy. 
it's a it's an issue the public charge that has has really affected some of the uh, HIV activists nationally who are concerned uh, both about how the administration is impacting access to HIV services, but what this could potentially mean when we we have the huge international AIDS conference uh, in the Bay Area next year. Um, I, I wanted to just share a story with you uh, from my day as an election monitor. Um, I was in Kern County. Um, in a church that was acting as a polling station. And, and I learned a really important lesson about being a U.S. citizen. And I, I had been a citizen then for about six, seven months. And it's really not about birth, but about values. Um, a recently naturalized Yemeni couple who spoke really next to no English came into the, the hall to cast their vote. And I was just blown away by how the entire staff Many of them, and I, you never want to make assumptions, but nonetheless, they appeared, how shall I put this, on the other side. But they made every effort, every extra mile to help them vote. The woman was pregnant. She needed to sit down, needed a glass of water. Uh, and to my surprise, after they cast their ballots, everyone broke into surprise, in, into applause. Um, the polling manager with, um, again, how shall I put this, her uh, higher the hair, closer to heaven hair, <laughs> She came up to me afterwards and said, Lord, help me, those citizens were going to vote. Um, so that really deeply affected me. And I, I think that's your constituency. Do, do you see much of that, a sort of a, 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 a ground up bipartisanship? Uh, very, very much so. And if there was one thing uh, I think this, uh, this administration might have had is, is really uh, activating a lot of these uh, the, the citizens and uh people that were eligible for citizenship or if they were a recently naturalized citizen to go out there and cast that vote for the first time. We met a number of uh, people just canvassing that would come up and say, you know, I've never voted before, but now I'm going to vote for you. Uh, and there's nothing more meaningful than that. Every time that anybody ever told me that, it literally gave me chills. And I'm just so proud to be able to represent uh, hardworking individuals and families like that. So could we talk a bit about healthcare? Um, I know you have strong views on this. You set up clinics across the Central Valley of California to provide uh, affordable healthcare services for low-income families. Could you tell us more about that experience and, and what services did you provide? I mean, healthcare is central to what I've been doing and certainly what my family has been doing for uh, a number of years. My wife, the reason why we're in the Central Valley uh, in the first place were uh, I was born in California, but we moved to the Central Valley some 20 years ago is in order for my wife to practice medicine as a pediatric intensive care physician. And I can tell you, she sees the consequences and the injustice of the healthcare system we have. Uh, so she uh, she's working at the bedside. And meanwhile, I, I worked on the supply side, really being able to try to fund community health clinics all up and down the valley to be able to provide quality, affordable health care to the people that need it you know, in the, lo the location where it's needed, the times that it's needed, and to provide the services that they're needed. And that's been uh, something I've been very proud to do and was, was halfway successful as a private citizen. I mean, on this show, we want to praise the people who simplify and make healthcare more affordable, just as much as we, we praise those scientists who come up with important, if complex, breakthroughs. Um, and and I, I really believe that making healthcare uh, more affordable, more simple, more accessible is actually the fundamental responsibility of our generation. I, I suppose I have to ask this question, but um, do you support Medicare for all? 
You know, this is what you need to know about me, that I truly believe it's my base principle that healthcare for all is a human right. All right. Just like education, just like clean air, just like clean water. And whether or not it's uh, one system or, or another to provide that quality, affordable health care to everyone that needs it is, uh, is just critical. You know, we, we know that there's a number of things that we need to do. One, uh, just like my wife says, when she has a critical ear patient, stabilize the patient, find an airway. So we need to stabilize the ACA. We need to get down the price of prescription drugs. And we've done that with some great legislation already this year. And then it really is what I've been doing, expand healthcare, uh, you know, rural access uh, through a lot of the different technologies that are available today. Yep. I, I can tell you, before I was married, uh, it, it, was, it was such a fine example. You may know that I used to work overseas quite a bit. Uh, all over Africa, the Middle East, and so on. But on a trip uh, back, I used to fly through London all the time. And my wife, Kathy, my, she wasn't my wife at that time, but she met me for a little vacation that we we're spending in, in the UK. It was fabulous. But she, uh, she had a, a bit of an infection, and we had to go to an ER, and we found a clinic down the street someplace in London. They took us in, said, how do you do? They they gave her an examination. They gave her a prescription. And on the way out, well, do we owe you anything? No. Thank you very much. All right? People were ill. They sick. They needed the medicine. They were taken care of. And there you go. Uh, that's that's a civilized society. That's what we should be doing. Absolutely. And and, and one of my heroes is uh, Nye Bevan, the um, first minister of health of the UK after the Second World War, who brought the National Health Service to the UK. Uh, but many of my progressive friends roll their eyes when I say, all we need to do is recreate the National Health Service here. Um, and, and I suppose another way of approaching the question is to ask you, what are the distinctly American ways that you believe health can be brought to everybody. Well, well, certainly it's a lot of things that we're doing now. And, you know, there's uh, one of the things that I know that we could do immediately, and it's a plan that we've been working on. And you may know that, but also my wife, Kathy, she's on the board of CAP of the California Physicians Alliance, which is, you know, developing a roadmap to get to healthcare for all. So I hear about this every night. We'll be laying in bed and, hey, this is what we ought to be doing and look at this. But, uh, but it, there's the Medicaid uh, with a uh, public, public option, which is something that states can do right now with the existing legislation. There's Medicare for all. There's Medicare for all that want it. Uh, but, you know, the things that we're doing now, as I talked about before, about stabilizing the ACA, we just passed a number of bills to bring down the cost of health care to basically uh, expand the, the ACA under the attacks from this administration. And we've got a lot more bills coming. And so that's really important work. And I, and I guess underpinning some of this as well as your position on some of the health services that are under threat and on a shot in the arm, we feel very strongly about um, access to reproductive health services. And I was thinking to myself, how I was, how was I going to ask you this question? I thought, oh, you know, just ask it. So TJ, what is your, your, your position on access to uh, safe abortion? That's a, it's absolutely a women's health issue, right? And women's health issues uh, should not be excluded from, from, our, uh, from the range of services that are provided to every citizen, all right? It's, so that's, uh, those are decisions that should be made between a woman and her doctor. And certainly the, you know, the, the base fundamental of that 
is to protect individual rights, okay? Uh, with the things that, 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 that we all know that uh, people should uh, have and, and be afforded. And certainly it's uh, those types of rights. But you know, the, the idea about being able to provide you know, contraceptive uh, and uh, these types of things over the counter are absolutely something that we ought to be doing. And you might have seen some of the legislation that we're being put, being put forward today with respect to that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, just turning the uh, turning the direction a little bit. Your your uh, district is also an important agricultural uh, center, as you said. Um, in a recent pe- podcast, uh, a regular contributor and I looked at the overuse of antibiotics in the meat industry, um, and it's not just meat. You're on the Congressional Subcommittee on Biotechnology, Horticulture, and Research. What does that committee do, and and, and do you have concerns or see opportunities where agriculture and health collide or can work together well absolutely the the idea of uh the overutilization of antibiotics in 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 the meat industry absolute concern all right but it's an absolute opportunity too is because to one to look at the uh the industry and why you know why is it necessary to use all these antibiotics right and so what can we be doing to improve that landscape where animals aren't getting sick Number, number one. But two, it's such a nice opportunity, you know, for more industry research to be able to uh, develop different things, you know, so that they aren't using antibiotics in the first place. And that's, you know, that's something that also we were just having hearings on this and it, it might be a little esoteric, but is that the, the Department of Ag is trying to decentralize a lot of their uh, tech, technological expertise by moving the National Institute for uh, Food and Ag Research, NIFA, and the ERS, their, ed- their Economic Research Services, out of D.C. to watch to Kansas City. Well, when you're talking about something like NIFA, well, they're able to uh, coordinate and collaborate and work together with something called NIH, right, <laughs> right here in, in D.C. So you have this concentration of experts, right, that really can work together. They could, uh, once, they said, once again, just collaborate on better, uh, uh, better, better programming therapies, technology, and so on. And this decentralized decentralization is really an unfortunate step in the wrong direction with regard to that. Well, absolutely, because you know the scientific community has to speak, engage, and learn from each other. And it's 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 um, you know there there are a number of areas uh, across the NIH and CDC where. It's not just this administration, but administrations have, particularly this one, has um, uh, tried and restricted the way scientists talk to each other. Um, I wanted also to ask you about your support for global health. Um, you've been a very vocal supporter of sustained U.S. support for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Um, and why have you done that? Why is global health important to you? It really comes from my time traveling around in, in working in Africa. Uh, it's it, it was it was just amazing to see at the little at the local health clinics in some of the villages I'd, I'd be there, uh, the the moms and, and and their children that are looking for simple things like vaccinations and uh, treatments for malaria and just the simple steps that we can take that would literally just cost us pennies to make such a profound difference in, in the lives of these people who, uh, who, who really deserve it. It's, 
we're all human beings. We all have a responsibility to look out for one another. And the, the U.S. with uh, all that we have, uh, I think that's really, it, it defines us just, just not only just as humans to be able to look out for, for one another and to do what we can. And uh, the fact that the U.S. has been able to do that, uh, I've just seen such a positive effect in, in other countries and certainly with the people that, uh, uh, you know, that I see in, in my own district. And, and naturally, you know, global health is U.S. health. You know, global security is U.S. security, you know. And so we need to be able to, you know, stop outbreaks before they, before they happen because uh, it's good for all of us. Absolutely. I mean, you'll remember that I used to work for the late ambassador, Richard Holbrook, a sort of anti-Trump when it comes to foreign policy. Um, and, and, you know, his in understanding that the investment in a Zambian copper mine worker was crucial to the safety of an agricultural worker in Delano, for example. Um, and and that, that, that uh, overseas development is as much a tool of American power as the military and sanctions. Um, so you, you guys have, in, in the House of Representatives, have... Uh, passed the legislation needed to fund the next replenishment of the global fund. It's now with the Senate. Fingers crossed it's looking good. We never take anything for granted. But um, what can you do and what would you recommend that, that we do to get the Senate to get funding for the global fund over the fence? Well, I, I, I can tell you, adv advocacy really works. Uh, you know, the, the people that come here, you certainly have had the House uh on the side of making these critical investments, uh, because it's such, it's one that's the right thing to do. And, and frankly, it's such a, it's an economic and social investment. You know, the greatest power that America has isn't so much our, our hard power. It, it's really the soft power to being able to do these types of things. But the House has taken that right step and to be able to move it through the Senate, uh, the Senate and certainly the Mitch McConnell needs to hear from the people. I mean, I'd be camping out outside of his office and, and, and letting him know about how critical this is. Uh, he, he can't be you know, the, the green reaper of legislation that affects so many people. Yeah, and we're not going to let him. Uh, just one last question on global health, and I, I suppose this does get a bit wonky now. Um, one of the things I'm very interested in doing is seeing how different um, – academic disciplines affect public health. And, and you were an engineer. You worked uh, internationally, as you said. From those experiences, how do you feel they can inform healthcare? Um, you know, as an engineer rather than a public health specialist, how do we prioritize responses to future threats? And sure, there's, there's, there's epidemics like Ebola, but what about non-communicable diseases like COPD or diabetes? Well, you know, certainly... Uh uh, one of the one of the great opportunities there is telehealth. Mm. All right, and, and so that's uh, you know telehealth is you can reach anybody anywhere, and so it's the access of uh, of you know high speed broadband to all of these countries, and, and certainly the once again as I was saying, rural communities throughout the California or the areas that I represent to you know villages in in Ghana or Zambia or. or uh, uh, Zimbabwe and, and throughout uh, Africa and, and Asia and, and all, all around the world. That's something that we can do very, very cheaply. Uh, the technology is there. And that's uh, those investments that we should be making. Uh, you've also been a strong supporter of human rights, um, particularly for the LGBT community. Um, 
At first, I imagine our subscribers might consider that District 21, while leaning Democrat, could be conservative with a little c. So, so why has um, LGBT equality been important to you? It's just equality for all. I may have related the story about why I'm a U.S. congressman today. And sure, I've done a lot of business things. I've created healthcare clinics, as you said. I've created jobs. I've tried to make a difference in the community. But really what drives me more than anything else is a sense of social justice. Uh, my mom was one of the state of Nevada's first equal opportunity officers. My grandmother, uh, back in the Philippines in Manila, took it upon herself to open the first and only social club for African-American troops. Uh, so when I see anybody being discriminated against, uh, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, uh, you know, that aren't being afforded the, uh, really the, the rights, uh, the, the courtesies, the respect that they deserve. It's just something that I need to stand up for. Yeah. And, and, you know, I come from the gay community, the, the, the community I feel where we, we really have to stand up and be strong with is with the trans community who've undergone a huge pressure, violations of human rights, indeed murders here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just wondered to what extent, um, you know, the, the, the Congress, the House of Representatives is, is looking at what it can do to support uh, our trans sisters and brothers. Well, we're, we're, I, I can tell you that we're doing all that we can, and certainly in this office that we're doing uh, all like we can. You may know that we recently passed the Equality Act, right, which is a huge step forward and certainly something else that uh, can be uh, uh, brought before uh, the Senate, Mr. McConnell's office. And, you know, the things that we've been trying to do, uh, my, myself personally, is uh, 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 fund clinics that, that – that, that may address uh, some specialty issues that are among the LBGTQ community. And, you know, just to fight back and, and to stand up, you know, the, uh, this administration's ban on, on transgender uh, service people. I mean, that is just, it's disgraceful. Um, but I, I say early on, a, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to go to a, uh, a remembrance day, um, of at Stan State in, in Turlock. And uh, this young woman there, she told the most powerful story uh, about her transformation. Uh, I still think about it today. And she was telling us the story is that, you know, uh, she, she had certainly uh, a number of issues, you know, in, in that she considered taking her own life. And she was going to go step in front of a train. Uh, and she tells the story is the funniest thing is that she said, uh, she was just, you know, praying for something to give her a sign. And while she was trying to get up on the track, she, uh, uh she tripped on her high hill and fell down the embankment. <laughs> and she took that as a sign and is, is such a great activist and an example of being such a fine individual that's serving our community today. And so it was great. I, my whole family went, my, my two, uh, the younger boys went and uh, she really just uh, has made such an impression on me that once again, it's uh, to stand up for individuals like this is uh, something I'm proud to do each and every day. So finally, you've got, I can't believe this, another fight for District 21 next year. For a shot in the arm subscribers who might want to learn more and find out how they might be able to support you, what what should they do? Well, no, uh, uh, thanks so much for, for that, Ben, is 
you know, certainly uh, visit us at uh, tjcoxforcongress.com. And, you know, the, the 21st Congressional District, as you know, is the, the people there uh, are just so darn deserving. It's a privilege to be able to represent them. And, you know, it's people that uh, want to come out and, and to canvas to talk to people. You'll knock on a door, and I'm sure you've gotten maybe this response uh, from some of the houses that you came to, and they'll be they will be grateful and honored that somebody uh, have traveled to come see them and ask for their vote because nobody ever has before uh, to know that they count and they matter and what they say uh, can really make a difference uh, for their own lives and for their families. It makes a difference. So thanks so much. Well, TJ, thank you for everything you do, uh, for the opportunity to learn from you. Um, in these cynical days, I got to say, you motivate me. I know you motivate others to do what we can to make the U.S. political system work for all of us. So, so thank you, uh, Congressman T.J. Cox. You are a shot in the arm. Well, thank you, and uh, yeah, salamat po. So, <laughs> <laughs> to all my uh, Filipino brothers and sisters uh, out there. Excellent. Thank you. We've been getting some very interesting comments, which we thought it would be fun to share with you. Now, I confess I have been rehearsing this and it does feel a bit BBC Radio 2 over Sunday lunch. So bear with me. Um, but first, Christina comments on the discussion last week that Sean Howell and I had. We will call Sean is the founder of Hornet. Christina observes that happening all around us, biotech and pharmaceutical companies are exploring closer interactions with data and process simplification. Data companies, at exactly the same time, are exploring how their products and services can impact the development of new therapies and improve delivery of healthcare. And then on top of that, you've got diagnostic companies exploring the linkages between data and biotechnology to improve access to regular diagnostics. So, it's all happening at the same time, and what Christina reminds us is that the traditional divisions between industrial sectors are being broken down, and that innovations in one of these sectors will deeply affect the delivery and development in other sectors. I completely agree, and in future shows, we're going to explore how incubators in finance and policy are driving this triangle of innovation between biopharmaceuticals, diagnostics and data. And there was another comment, which a Shot in the Arm podcast producer Eric and I discussed, and we felt it was really important to air, not because we agree with it, indeed far from it, but because it raises some really very important topical issues for us. The comment was in response to the piece with Yvette Raphael on the results of the ECHO trial. Uh, and the comment was, no thank you, worrying about my country first. Well... Too many women here in the USA have extremely limited access to contraceptive choices, HIV testing and prevention, let alone prevention and treatment for sexually transmitted diseases. So ECHO resonates here, and we should worry about what it means, particularly for minority communities. The comment also speaks to America First, the latest iteration of that tired, old isolationism that the USA has flirted with throughout its 250-year history. Isolationism doesn't work. History shows us that it actually puts us at greater risk. The USA is the dominant global power. Global health and overseas development are not just goods in their own right. They are as important as the military and sanctions. 
We are part of the smart diplomacy that the late Ambassador Richard Holbrook practiced with such effect. A major lesson I have learned from a Shot in the Arm podcasts is that national boundaries really are becoming less and less relevant. Politically and economically, no matter how hard we try to cling to our tribal roots, imagined or real, and they have absolutely no bearing on the spread of viruses and bacteria. On a lighter note, Annie says that she's really enjoying listening to our podcasts and that they are just the right length for her commute home. (laughs) Thank you so much, Annie. Thanks also to Angela, Margaret, Andrew, Rachel, Tom and Chris for your very similar remarks. We really appreciate all your comments. Please keep them coming. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you to Congressman TJ Cox. As always, thanks to Eric Espera, our producer from Newsdoc Media. Thanks also to The Human League, one of Britain's greatest electronic pop bands ever. And finally, thanks to you for being a shot in the arm. Have a great week. 